The following content is explicit. It's Thursday, February 1st, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes is close to achieving his goal of hashtag release the memo. At this point, I guess they have to. What are you going to do? Because hashtag appease the lame How could this memo contain anything worthwhile? Who would want an accounting of what went on and who was wiretapped and why through the lens of discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes? Now, I'm not saying this as an ad hominem attack. When I describe him as a discredited nincompoop, there's a reason. One, he's discredited. Remember the whole Trump alleging that Obama wiretapped him in Trump Tower and then Nunes ran interference on that. So he's discredited. He should be discredited in the non-Sean Hannity portions of the media. But let's get to nincompoop. I'm not saying he's a flat-out dummy. I'm not alleging that he is, in general, a low-IQ individual. To me, nincompoop connotes something of the harebrained. Like going back to edit a report that you said you wouldn't touch, that you swore to other members of the committee, yes, this what you read, this is what's going to be released. It's just, as a smokescreen, it's not a well-thought-out smokescreen. The smoke, not nearly opaque enough. It just seems like a bad idea. Just like the, the last idea that discredited, discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes. Just a bad idea. The execution was botched, even if it went through correctly and somehow people bought that Obama had wiretapped Donald Trump because he hadn't, that would have gotten out. And here's the underlying truth of this. How does he think he's going to win? How does he think that this is going to serve his cause as anything other than a distraction? Once it comes out, it will be easily rebutted. You're going up against the FBI and the CIA. They always win. Even when they lose, they win. J. Edgar Hoover harasses and smears innocent victims, but he smeared them. He successfully smeared them. The FBI gets a lot of convictions that are later overturned, but they they get the convictions, and then you have trying to thwart this powerful FBI, who in this case happens to have the truth on their side. You have discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes. I predict he will be remembered as the BB Rebozo of this affair, not because of the relative places they held, just because of the names, the BB Robosity and the discredited nincompoopery. On the show today, it's a blast from the past, a spiel with appeal. We ask you to vote Jabba. But first, a biography of, I'm going to say, the second most consequential president of the 20th century. Who do you think I mean? It's LBJ. Never trust a man unless you have his pecker in your pocket. That was, of course, said by the Dalai Lama. No, it wasn't. It was said by Lyndon Baines Johnson. And he is the subject of a new book by Josh Zeitz. It is named Building the Great Society Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. Josh Zeitz joins me. Hello, Josh. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. I need to ask you this question straight up. How old are you? I am 44. We're almost exactly the same age. And I find that Lyndon B. Johnson is possibly the most consequential American that people of our generation and younger do not get. Like, they may be 
like you and me, we read the Caro books, but he doesn't come up that often. He only comes up maybe as a counterweight to Martin Luther King. He wasn't portrayed that well in Selma. There's this huge gap when it comes to appreciating LBJ. Did you perceive, you're a historian, you're trained in history. Did you perceive that going in? I think that's exactly right. I mean, Johnson was, in the last 50 years, the single most consequential president we've had. You can't understand most of the modern American welfare state without understanding Johnson. Part of the problem with his legacy is that the standard narrative, that of the so-called flawed giant um, who had his heart in the right place when it came to domestic policy, but really screwed up when it came to Vietnam, that's the narrative that simply remains etched in stone. And so people have a hard time getting behind that and challenging that. If you scratch below the surface, you know, you, you see that many of the books and most of the movies on him, including the most recent one um, that came out this fall, you know, they sort of stop the story the minute that the Civil Rights Act gets signed into law or they right. stop the story the minute that, you know, he signs into law the, uh, you know, the Voting Rights Act. But there's a whole lot that happens afterwards. Where does he rank on the historical rankings? Maybe I should ask you what, what you think of those historical rankings. Oh, they're fine. I mean, yeah. like, you know, historians are people, too, and they live in the moment. He doesn't do too badly. I think he probably does better among historians than he does if you were going to go by a popular ranking. I think historians recognize his contributions to civil rights as well as domestic policy. Oddly enough, like you know, when I wrote this book, I was expecting it to come out and after the first year of a Hillary Clinton presidency. Yeah. And I thought, well, it'll be good. It'll it'll contribute to the conversation a bit, but it won't be very controversial. What you look at now is Republicans attempting effectively to dismantle the Great Society. If you look yes. at everything they're doing from making it harder for African-Americans and other people of color to vote, they want to create religious exemptions to public accommodations laws that were embedded in the Civil Rights Act. They're certainly trying to dismantle many of the anti-poverty programs from Medicaid to uh, you know nutritional assistance for poor children and families. So in some ways, you know, the Great Society is 50 years later very much at the center of the American debate. And that's an irony I did not expect. As you rightly point out, there's so much more to what he erected. Take, for instance, I, I didn't really realize the extent of it, fair housing. It was so wildly unpopular. And Ronald Reagan was swept into office based on his objection to the fair housing provisions. I mean, it was kryptonite to a liberal Democrat who supported what now today, you know, you can't be anyone to the left of Steve King without saying, yeah, of course we have to have fair housing provisions. That's right. I think one little appreciated element of his presidency is that it's not that he sort of accidentally suffered a political price for um, his advocacy of civil rights. He very much understood what was at stake. And, you know, as he told one of his aides when they, they early on advised him not to go to bat for a civil rights hall, he said, well, what the hell is the presidency for? Yeah. He understood. He had This a, is why you get elected. That's this right. Is, sometimes we talk about earning credibility and popularity. I mean, what you do, ideally, you want a president or a political figure to garner popularity to spend it on important things, like not a scandal, but a piece of civil rights legislation. Precisely. And, and Johnson knew that he had a certain amount of capital. He had this, this famous conversation with Bill Moyers on the third floor of the residence of the White House. And he said, this is, this is what I have. And I'm going to bleed this many, you know, this many supporters, uh, both in, sort of like out in the nation and in Congress every year, every month. And I'm going to use the capital while I have it. Now, he also went to bat, you know, administratively to enforce these laws. I mean, uh, you know, in order to become eligible for Medicare, hospitals everywhere had to, and nursing homes, had to agree immediately to desegregate their facilities. And the administration went pretty far in explaining what that meant and in enforcing it. That meant that, you know, you had to accept uh, people of color as patients for the first time in, in 
thousands of Southern hospitals. It meant that the rooms and the floors could not be segregated. It meant that the medical staff could not be segregated. It meant that you could not ask patients if they had a preference as to whom they would share a room with. It went so far as to demand that courtesy titles like doctor and Mr. and Ms. be extended to African-American um, you know, physicians Doctors. and patients. Yeah, yeah, it's like, can you believe that? Yeah. That an African-American doctor wasn't called doctor. Uh, precisely. And yeah. and they enforced this. They sent thousands of inspectors out there. They tried to get people to comply. They didn't want to withhold funds. He was in the weeds. I mean, during the school desegregation fights in 1964, um, that summer and leading into the fall, he was looking every day at reports that went county by county and district by district, what had been desegregated, what what hadn't. They had a carrot and a stick now. For the first time ever, the federal government, because of him, was supplying schools with a lot of federal aid. And they had the Civil Rights Act. So they could both sue these districts, which they did, and they could also withhold federal funding. You know, I'm in the middle of the Grant biography, and it, it, an analogy hit me. Maybe the Civil Rights Act was the Civil War, and everything else was Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so the Civil War, we could celebrate as a victory, just like the Civil Rights Act. It's everything else that was as necessary, you know, built upon the accomplishment of the Civil Rights Act. Without it, we wouldn't be in the place we are today, the good place we are today, but it gets short shrift. Well, and it is striking to me that, that things we have considered long settled in American yeah. political culture are now back on the table. Uh, you know, when Well, you, are they? Well, when you start opening... You know, so many states have public accommodations laws that are modeled after the Federal 64 Act. The Federal right. 64 Act doesn't extend to, to sexual orientation, although there's some argument that because it extends to sex, that might encompass that as well. Gender, but yes. yeah, when you're talking about religious exemptions to public accommodations, you know, open access laws that apply to people serving or refusing service to LGBT families, I don't even think it's a slippery slope. It's one step away from allowing people to claim some sort of religious exemption from the Federal Civil Rights Act as well. How does, not just the Democrat, obviously the Democrats were the dominant party in the South. How does a liberal get elected from Texas? Or, you know, the, a couple theories, maybe he became more liberal. Texas was a little bit different from it is now. But, you know, big theory is that, well, the advancements that he was promising, he was promising to white and black people. Well, it's interesting. So there was a structural kind of element to Texas. Texas, as well as other southern states, that lent itself to a kind of survival for a time of a liberal wing. Johnson, you know, Johnson was at his heart a liberal New Deal congressman with a couple of notable exceptions. He, in the 1930s and 40s, did not support civil rights bills in, in the House. And then later in the Senate, he didn't as well toward the until the end of his, his tenure there. But he had to he had to hew a very tight line and it was a it was a tightrope for him to walk. Medicare. How big an impact was it? It was huge. So, I mean, before Medicare, senior citizens had no hospital insurance and, and no insurance to go see a doctor. So unless you had saved up enough money, at some point or another, you were going to be hospitalized. And if you didn't have the money, either you'd be turned away or you'd have to rely on your, your relatives to hopefully scrimp and save. I mean, senior citizens simply went without medical attention and care. Medicare, in a, you know, at least in its original iteration, um, provided for X number of days, and it was a pretty healthy allotment of hospital care for free. And it also provided an optional medical insurance that seniors could buy into for a nominal fee that would cover doctor's visits. And 19 million seniors signed up for it out of an eligible population of about 19 million. Wow. What's amazing, though, is that they had to get people to enroll 
So, you know, they came up this incredible sort of almost like dragnet operation where they used every federal bureaucracy and agency available from the Park Service, which combed, you know, remote areas for kind of like mountain men who were off the grid to the Postal Service. And they literally just went door to door. And they also used, you know, early computerized punch cards to get 19 million seniors both to enroll in the hospital insurance, but also to enroll in the voluntary medical insurance and agree to pay a fee. You know, the idea with Obamacare is that people would get it and like it, just like they got Medicare and liked it. I guess that didn't happen if you look at the pollings. What do you think the difference was? Uh, the political culture was so different. The parties were different. I mean, again, you know, on, on one hand, Medicare passed on a bipartisan vote. Now, it's an, there's an important caveat. Each party was deeply riven by ideological differences. So yes. you had Southern Democrats who tended to be very conservative, but not necessarily on questions like, you know, anti-poverty or... or or healthcare and education bills. Another factor, just the ability to discern that which is plainly true. It seems to me that back then, if the Washington Post and the New York Times reflected and printed some government statistics about how this bill was affecting people, and Walter Cronkite said that on the air, then that was it. Then people would be like, oh yeah, this is, this is working. That was it. And unfortunately, I, I think we can somewhat blame Lyndon Johnson for having opened you know, the credibility gap. That was a term that was coined in 1966 to, yeah. to sort of describe his own administration's you know, dissemblance on the question of how much money we were spending in Vietnam, how many troops were needed to quote unquote win when the war would be over. That plus Watergate are what opened up this divide and created this kind of almost permanent suspicion of government. Do you think many other public officials, people who could have become president, would have done something much different about Vietnam? I mean, you know, how much is how much do we blame LBJ? I know he inherited it. I know he didn't improve it. I know he kind of got dragged into the war in a way he didn't like. But were there other voices there or other people who could plausibly have been president who would have done something much different? Strikingly, no. By and large, the war was a reflection of broad political consensus across you know, the ideological spectrum, across the parties. There was no serious voice against it either in Congress, one or two, but not really, and certainly not among his aides uh, or really until 1965-66 among most elite American actors anyway. I mean – it's easy. But the to... Gulf, of, Gulf of Tonkin resolution passed ninety-eight to two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, and it's easy to blame Johnson or to say that he was dragged into the war, or that he he lacked his predecessor's sort of self-confidence to stay out of it. But the fact of the matter is that you know America's Cold War culture finally sort of like brought serious consequences. You know, Americans bought into the domino theory by and large, and they didn't stop buying into it until you know, halfway through that war. But even into the late 60s, I mean, the, the war was not singularly unpopular. One one fascinating piece kind of like of trivia is that when Johnson's team did polling both before and after the fact in New Hampshire, after he, he narrowly beat Eugene McCarthy in the primary in 68, but effectively that ended his campaign, they found that a significant minority of, of McCarthy voters were conservative Catholic Democrats who were really upset that Johnson wasn't going harder on North Vietnam, that he wasn't bombing more and that he wasn't, you know, committing further troops. And their only choice they were going to register their their dissent was to vote for McCarthy. So that they weren't voting for him because he was a dove. They were voting for him because they didn't think Johnson was enough of a hawk. Um, by constitutional law, you could only serve for 10 years and he would have served nine and a month if he yeah, was about elected that, for a second about, term. Yeah. He just saw the writing on the wall and he wasn't going to win the election. 
is it, I don't know if it's fair to ask, what might have his agenda been in the next four years? Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, he was he was deeply committed to trying to expand the Great Society, right? So he wanted, you know, he had this famous line where he said, I left the woman I love to fight that bitch of a war and the woman he loved was the Great Society. You know, I think it had been Johnson's hope that he could wind down the war and then shift spending and attention and priorities to his domestic policies and, and expand them. Now, he would have faced an interesting dilemma. So one of the things I look at in the book is this sort of guiding philosophy behind the Great Society. Democrats in the early 60s, mid-60s felt that they had two choices. If you want to deal with poverty, you can either do things that are pretty radical, like create a you know universal basic income or family income or have a reverse income tax. That was one point of view. And the other point of view was that experts had figured out how to manage and grow the economy. And this certainly seemed true in the 1940s and 50s and 60s sustain high growth, keep growing the pie at low interest rates because they had cracked the code during the Second World War and figured it out. It had nothing to do with, you know, all of our rivals being decimated and all the yeah. men coming back no, and no, the no, factories no. booming. No, of course it wasn't not. an accident. Is. So they thought that they figured it out and there's a lot of hubris there. And, and you know, they figured out how to cure polio. Yeah. They were putting a man on the moon. Yeah. So they, they figured were, the best and the brightest figured out Vietnam. They figured it all they out. They figured it all out. But they thought they had figured it all out for a time. And by the mid to late 60s, some of his aides are beginning to look at this like Daniel Patrick Moynihan and they're saying, well, this doesn't really work. And what poor people need is not opportunity. Because if you if you live in a kind of decimated coal town, they were worrying about these coal towns in the 1960s, there are no jobs. There is no opportunity. You can have all the training in the world and we can get you to a doctor so you'll be healthy, but there's no job, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the question is, would he have had to, would he have changed course? Would he have reconsidered some of the patchwork pieces that comprise the Great Society and moves in a, in a kind of leftward direction? Building the Great Society inside Lyndon Johnson's White House is the book. Joshua Zeitz is the author. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. What you are about to hear is not new. We're taking a couple of planning days here at the end of the week, doing some workforce development. Okay, fine, I'm getting my yogi certification. And while we're away at the ashram, we wanted to bring you a favorite from the archives. This is a spiel from May 2016. I think you'll understand. I think you'll be oriented. But uh, remember that fugue state that we were in? It was premised on another six months of presidential election campaigning, which would end in a capillary-bursting, pollster-stunning Trump victory. Uh, Democracy-hindering, I think maybe we could add to the list. Now, remember, at the time, get yourself in this May 2016 mindset. We couldn't know this. We would just keep watching the CNN segments that inspired this. We had a little fun imagining Trump as Jabba the Hutt. Enjoy. And now the spiel. You ever watch those focus groups? CNN has them. CBS hired uh, Frank Lutz, who does them professionally, to do them for that network. They get six or eight voters together. They stack them in two rows. It's always two rows on risers. And they figure out how the candidates are doing among these voters. You know the format. I want a word or phrase to describe tonight's debate. And I'm going to start in the second row. Sophomoric. Embarrassment. Disappointing. Shameful. Despicable. Angering. Low on substance. 
Well, what we've done here at The Gist is to focus our attention on our own focus group, but it's not for any election nearby. Indeed, the two candidates are running in a municipality far, far away. Okay, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I know the forest moon of Endor is not the easiest place for you to get to. No, of course, of course. Wookiees are excellent navigators. Didn't mean to malign your kind. Okay, so you all have self-identified as either supporters of or leaning toward, in the next election, the candidacy of Jabba the Hutt. So yes, you, can you, uh, Plo Koon, can you tell me why you support Jabba the Hutt? Yeah, well, uh, I just think with all the infighting between the Empire and the Galactic Senate, you know, to say nothing of how the Trade Federation is eating our lunch like a Klatooine patty frog, uh, he's just a guy that's going to cut through that crap. You know, I'm tired of the dysfunction of the Galactic Senate, blah, 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 job of the hut. You know, he gets shit done. Yeah, okay, I understand. But with that in mind, let me play you this clip of Jabba, somewhat controversial. Let me get your opinion. Now, a lot of people have called that insensitive, and I want to point out there is actually no evidence that the Gungans were celebrating the destruction of Alderaan. So what about that? Go go ahead, Plo Sorry, yeah. So I'm from Naboo, all right? And what he's saying there is true. Like, everyone from Naboo knows that. Like, I'm not saying all, okay? I'm not saying all. I'm saying some Gungans were celebrating. Yes, but contemporary press accounts at the time. Look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jabba says what other huts are afraid to say. I mean, he's a businessman. Well, his critics would say he's a gangster. That's just because... That's not fair. Hold on, hold on. One at a time. Koth Milan, go ahead. Well, it's just like all the reports that Jabba has a pet sarlacc that inhabited the great pit of Carcoon that slowly dissects his enemies every year. It's just not true. <laughs> well, Maru Maru here says it is true that he's seen the sarlacc, but why then, Maru Maru, have you said that you're undecided that you might actually vote for Jabba? Uh. I agree. Whatever you think of Jabba, he's authentic, more authentic than his opponent. I mean, Princess Leia, I don't know. She just acts like she's better than Jabba. Well, she is a Jedi and a princess and the youngest ever member of the Galactic Senate. Don't give me that she's a member of the Galactic Senate. Look at Alderaan. I think she's far too trusting. Well, her defenders would say that she was tortured while a prisoner of the Death Star. I like princesses who weren't captured, okay? Okay, okay. Back to you, Maru Maru. What's your reason for not backing Princess Leia? Uh. Okay, yes? Understood? Let us, we actually have that clip. Let's play what he's talking about. Will somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way? Uh. It's still smarts, huh? But she's apologized for that. And I think if you play one clip and ignore all she's done her whole life in a pro-Wookiee context, fighting for Wookiees, fighting side by side for Wookiees, she's much stronger on Wookiee policy than Jabba. Okay, okay, but then why are you, IG-88, why are you still undecided about voting for her? I don't know. I mean, I'm an assassination droid, and there, there's just been so much less work for us. And as, as much as I do not like some of the things that Jabba has said about Princess Leia or some barges he's shackled her to, I just think that the jobs could be going away and not coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want someone, anyone to kill. I, I don't want to get retrained to program irrigation systems or to work a protocol desk. Those jobs pay a lot less. Nobody gets killed. Uh, and I think Jabba's the one who understands that threat. Okay, now, Koth Milan, I want to turn to you. I need to bring you into this conversation. I take it you're a Bothan. That's right. Okay. And given all that Java has said about Bothans, that you're all spies, that you've got to be kept out of certain systems. Well, he's also said not all Bothans. But listen, mm-hmm. I'm a third generation Coruscant. 
I consider myself Coruscantian first, then Bothan. And like Plo was saying, uh, Jabba says things that no one else was saying. Okay, Plo Koon, what do you think about that? Uh, well, I think it's interesting, but uh, deep down, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I think she's a spy. She's a both in spy. How, how dare you? You're a spy. You're I'm not a, a spy. You're a spy. Uh, no, I'm not. Guys, guys, guys. Oh. We've got, can we please? And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé's biggest wedge issue is Antilles. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, explains Jabba's popularity among low-information R2 units. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, wants to appeal to swing spice mines and purple moons of Yavin. The gist, I'm Admiral Akbar, and I approve this message. Impru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>